episode 174 of the Bevan James Isles Show, an interview with Anders Ericsson. Rightio, to mark along to episode 180, no, sorry, 74 of uh, Bevan James Isles Show. I need to say it again. Rightio, to mark along to episode 174 of the Bevan James Isles Show, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness so you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. Um, I am just on holiday, so what I do over the holiday season, I just release an old interview that I think is pretty great. And this interview I'm releasing today is a great interview. It's an interview of a man by the name of Anders Ericsson. If you've heard of the rule of 10,000 hours, which was popularized by Malcolm Gladwell in the book Outliers, uh, the basic concept is it takes 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to become a master of anything in your life. Um, that, that concept was brought to the world by Anders Ericsson. And Anders Ericsson, you're going to see, he's, 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 he's a pretty great man. Uh, I love this interview. I did it about three or four years ago. Uh, I just, A, I was pretty happy to get him on the show because he's a pretty important person. And then B, the he just delivered. And uh, the thing I really liked about him, and you're going to see this in the interview, he was really curious. Like He just seems like a really lovely man. Post the interview, not, normally to get someone like him on the show, it's hard work getting them on. Um, you know, you're just very thankful that they've given it their time. And then afterwards, he sent me an email saying, thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed the interview and so on. So I just thought that was pretty cool stuff. So that's going to be coming on in a second. I just want to say before I put it on, I just want to say a big thank you to the patrons of the show. These are the people who support me and what I do. And they do that by just donating a little bit of money each time I release an episode. Now, if you want to become a patron of the show, you just go to bevanjamesisles.com. On the front page, if you go down to the bottom, you'll see support me. And you can just donate a little bit of money there. Um, or you go to the podcast section. So it's kind of cool. So I'm just going to name a few people who are patrons. We've got uh, Bernadette, the Soul Caliber Perry. We've got Matt. Forrest Warhol at Kirst. We've got Holly the Go-Getter Woodhouse. I saw her out running the other day, actually. Uh, Sue, the only way up is Chisel. Uh, Denise, Ab, Fab, Dana. These people support the show and they get cool nicknames when they do. So if you enjoy the show and you want to support it, go to bevanjamesisles.com. Anyway, I'm going to get straight into it. Here is my interview with Anders Ericsson. Okay, team. I'm very, very excited. I've, you know, on the show over the years, we've had some some very impressive guests, and uh, the one we have on today's show is someone I hold to the high hold to the highest regard, and this is Anders Ericsson, who's the publisher of the book Peak, but has has a long history of studying what creates peak performance, and has been a pretty big influence um, among many big thinkers in the world. So, first of all, welcome along to the show, Anders. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. So, so I always love to kind of learn a bit of the history of the person before we kind of go into their body of work. So maybe tell me a little bit about yourself and what, where you started off on your journey of discovering, you know, your body of work. Well, you know, I, I, I guess I can go back, uh, 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 you know, as far back as my childhood. And I, I think I've always been very intrigued by trying to understand my own thinking and, and in particular trying to understand people who seem to be able to do things that I couldn't do. Uh, and I think that has kind of been the, the red thread here through out, you know, when I got to the university, I 
uh, started studying thinking by having a participant think out loud while they were solving problems uh, as a way here of understanding, you know, how different people think and also how similar people think when they're confronted similar situations. When, when, when you first started, when did you start studying? Well, uh, basically, I think uh, when I was uh, just in the last uh, classes of high school, I started reading about psychology and then I went to the university and I was first going to be a nuclear physicist and then I actually was a double student for a couple of years uh, so I actually more as a sort of a hobby was taking courses in psychology but then I really found that psychology offered me a much better chance here to kind of study thinking and, and so then I switched over full time uh, and got a PhD in psychology. And at that time, you know, how much, you know, because psychology as a science or as a, as a kind of academic kind of field, it's quite a new academic field in comparison to others. At that time, how much energy was going into the field of kind of human peak performance? Well, you know, not very much. And, and, and I guess that was sort of interesting to me. Uh, most of the uh, researchers in the department, they were doing psychophysics. So you, they were listening to tones and they had people rate them and, and basically really looking from the bottom up. So when I came, <clears throat> I, I really was the first person to really start collecting thinking aloud protocols and, and basically trying to get at thinking. And, and a lot of people thought, you know, that that was too soft. You know, there wasn't really science. Really? And, and, I, and I think the fact that I had more math background, you know, because of my background in nuclear physics, it was sort of like they felt, well, you know, this guy can do the mathematical work that I'm doing, so it's kind of okay for him to explore other methods, whereas a lot of other students who didn't, weren't really strong in mathematics, you know, they, it was sort of like they just couldn't do the stuff that they were doing and therefore weren't encouraged to explore other types of methods. And so did you feel resistance? Well, <clears throat> and, and, and maybe in some ways, you know, the, the need here to really prove myself, you know, to really try to be convincing and find evidence that would really demonstrate, and that's really what my dissertation was all about, was using thinking aloud protocols and then showing that this actually allowed us to explain more hard data like latencies between different moves in a game that I was studying and being able to kind of describe why some uh, of the subjects were much better at learning the game than others. So I think that was kind of probably a pretty fortunate for me <clears throat> that I was kind of challenged by these other people to really prove here that what I found that the subjects were telling me in terms of what they were thinking about really reflected uh, the performance that could be observed. Do, do you remember early on any kind of real key breakthrough moments for you where A, your belief in where, where you were going was the right path and, and B, you got credibility? Well, I, I kind of do remember one American psychologist who uh, visited the department and gave a talk, and, and I got a chance to talk to him for an hour. 
And when he heard about the fact that I basically was doing this commuting between the Royal Institute of Technology and Psychology and the kind of work I was doing, you know, he, he really kind of told me, you know, this is really impressive. And, wow. and I think, you know, that was, you know, one of those little <clears throat> signs of, 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 of uh, confidence that, you know, just sort of made your self-confidence grow quite a bit. So, you know, in the scientific field, you often are, or, you know, in the research field, you are trying to find, you kind of are trying to find, discover things, aren't you? But you often, I imagine, go into it with an idea of what you think you're going to find. So early on, when you're in this kind of process of discovering a, pro, you know, that process of communicating my thoughts as I'm thinking, um, what, what were you thinking you were going to discover? Well, you know, I, I think it was more this search to try to understand because uh, there were several researchers in the United States that had started to ask the question, you know, how can we actually get a computer to behave as a human person? And, uh, and that led to a lot of questions here about, you know, what is it that allows people to solve problems? And what is it that we need to tell computers to be able to do that? Mm. Now, my feeling was, and, and I guess that was kind of my angle on it, that the computer models didn't really capture the the range of, of of sort of adaptability and change that humans had, and 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 I think that was kind of the starting point when I was invited to come to the United States to be a postdoc. I was really interested in, you know, to what extent you know a computer. <clears throat> The memory structure can't be really changed. You can just change the content of the memory in the computer. Mm. But so, so there was this belief that humans had a very limited short-term memory that was kind of hardwired and really couldn't be changed. So that was kind of the first major question that I started addressing with, with a senior professor uh, at Carnegie Mellon University. So we actually wanted to see, can you actually expand the amount of information that you can hold on to in your short-term memory with training? So that was kind of the first <clears throat> question. And, and people can do about seven digits. What we showed, and especially we were able to collect thinking loud protocols of how this process changed as this college student improved the number of digits that he could report back in order from about seven and towards the end, he was able to do strings of 80 random digits. Wow. But <clears throat> it really showed that the rural reports really helped us understand what it is that really was changing as a function of training. And I think that may in fact be the most kind of important insight that I've ever had because it really allowed us then to start asking, you know, what is it that other experts in other fields are doing? And can we describe that with the same kind of methods? And does it evolve in a similar way as a result of training, such that you're actually building up new mental structures that explain why some people are able to perform at a much higher level than others? Mm. You know, in your book, you talk about this <clears throat> this student who you took from taking from you know seven 
words up to 80. Um, and, and you kind of talk a lot about their process and how they learnt these models and they create these models as they went along. But also, I imagine you're a part of the experience because you're trying to learn how to get the best out of them at the same time. Well, you know, he was extremely motivated. And, and I guess we were really more passively trying to observe as he was kind of trying out different things. And I guess the key was, instead of just rehearsing the numbers, he actually broke them into little groups and then formed connections here with knowledge about numbers. He was a long-distance runner, so he could look at you know, a three-digit number as a time for a particular race and kind of form meaning out uh, between those uh, numbers. And that allowed him now to store this in long-term memory. And as he got better, he could store up to about 20 different chunks like that in long-term memory. And then when he was supposed to recall at the end, he would then go back to his long-term memory and pull them out one by one so he could then reproduce the exact uh, sequence. Mm-hmm. And, and so at that time, you kind of made some discoveries around what he was doing to make him successful. What were those key takeaways from that for you? Well, you know, we, we basically argued that the most important thing was making, finding connections with long-term memory, knowledge they already had about running times, uh, sometimes, you know, dates like, you know, 1942, uh, ages of people was another mnemonic that he used. The second principle was what we call retrieval structure. It was sort of like he was encoding these meaningfully, and then he was placing them within a spatial scheme that he developed. And over time, he could actually have about 20 of these different locations in his mind where he could actually form associations uh, with the uh, digit groups that he had encoded. So, so at what point did you, did you kind of, you know, you, you, one of the big things you promote is this kind of idea of deliberate practice. So you're saying those are the models. Where did the deliberate practice part start to come out for you? Well, and, and that was actually an insight that, you know, I made even after how close this particular training that we engaged in, because we always kept the student at his limit. So if he was able to do nine digits we would start presenting him with nine digits. When he got nine digits, we would increase it to 10. So we constantly kept him at a length where he was failing 50% of the time. Mm. And, and I think, you know, that being able to repeat, try out different things, and then actually keep working, I think that incorporates a lot of what we later <clears throat> called deliberate practice, where you actually get immediate feedback on what you're doing and then you can repeat it until you basically mastered it and increased uh, your performance. So so, did, so, at the time, you made these insights about him making connection to long-term memory and his re- retrieval structure and stuff. And then after the fact, you kind of reflected upon how you got him there and it made you realize that, that kind of stretching of him was one of the keys to actually helping him progress and keeping on on his edge was actually one of the things that came to the point where we could get up to 80 words at a time. Right. And and I think that is one of the intriguing things about deliberate practice. So if you're only successful 50% of the time, 
that's to a lot of people really frustrating. Mm. But what we would argue, that's where you want to be. That's a sweet spot where you're basically able not to stretch yourself and actually go a little bit further. And if you were adjusting now the difficulty level such that you always are at 50%, I think that's the ideal spot for somebody who wants to improve. But a lot of people would find that that takes too much work, you know, stretching yourself. And, and what we find is the key is actually finding enough time when you can sustain that concentration. So instead of trying to do hours and hours, you may be better off having 30 minutes of that intense concentration because that really allows you now to increase your performance beyond what you could do uh, previously. You, you, you talk about this a lot, don't you? You talk about this whole idea of that deliberate practice is hard. You know, it's, it's not, it's not like a lot of people who um, become masters, they don't think about their practice time as an enjoyable time. It's not something that they're necessarily even that fond of, but they enjoy the rewards of it, obviously, but the actual process of deliberate practice is, it's kind of meant to be hard, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I think it, it's maybe even clearer when you go to some of the physical things. Mm. So for example, if you want to increase the amount of weight that you can lift uh, when you're doing weightlifting, if you basically do things that don't really require much effort, uh, I bet you you're not going to improve very much. Yeah. What seems to be key to improving is to be at that limit where you're actually pushing yourself. But it's also clear that you need a lot of rest and recuperation. And it seems that when you're pushing yourself beyond your limits, you're activating genes that then during the rest period is actually starting to modify the physiology of your muscles or your body. And, and so, so that kind of links up now that there isn't really any shortcuts or ways in which you can find these magical insights that transform you. You're actually going to have to transform your body and brain and, and that's what you do during deliberate practice. So, so if we were to define deliberate practice, uh, you know, is there a kind of a, a def definition that you kind of use to define what deliberate practice is? Yeah. Now, now we kind of distinguish regular practice. You know, when somebody goes out and plays golf, you know, goes through the court or plays a tennis game or whatever, you know, that's just, you're just doing. Uh, we also distinguish purposeful practice where you're actually picking out some aspect of the game that you really want to change. And, and in order to do that effectively, you have to almost have your own training environment. Uh, one example that I would, you know, often, uh, uh, use is when you're playing tennis, doubles tennis, and you miss a backhand volley, say, well, the game is just going to go on. It's not like you have a chance here of, improving your backhand volley during regular doubles play. Hmm. Imagine that you actually now have a coach who basically have dedicated time. He can allow you to get ready for the volley and make corrections here so you actually are doing the right kind of strokes, then make it increasingly more difficult by forcing you to run up to the net and do the volley and then eventually embed this in rallying so you can now incorporate these improvements in your backhand volley in your uh, overall game. Mm. So, so that 
provides you now maybe in just one hour as many opportunities as you would accumulate over months or years. And, and I would uh, argue that the benefits of that one hour is going to be more than years of just playing regular doubles play. Mm. Mm. And, and so with, with that, what we are looking for is, so is, is there a process like, you know, so you're saying that regular practices you're just doing, hoping to get better, but actually you're not really concentrating on the key areas that are going to help me progress forward. And if I'm going to do that kind of thinking, uh, it's reflective, it's focused on those areas, and then you're going to actually do the work to improve that area. Exactly. And, and I think that idea here that you have to focus your practice because that's when you're going to be able to maximize now doing the same thing over and refining it. Uh, so in regular environments, situations are so different from each other that you don't really get that control so you can actually now improve the way uh, you're you know hitting your backhand volley or you're doing your putts or or whatever and and i guess we talk about deliberate practice as being a purposeful practice which is guided by a teacher so if you actually have a teacher that have taught other individuals to go from your current level to where you want to be, then basically you have some assurance here that the teacher can actually tell you about what is the effective practice that will help you get to where you want to go. Mm. And, and very often when people train by themselves, you know, they have ideas about what they need to do. So if you want to, you know, improve your dunking in basketball, you know, you may jump up against the hoop, you know, try to jump higher and higher. As it turns out, that's not the most effective way of increasing your jumping height. If you want to increase your jumping height, more effective is weight training, where you can actually train your legs by pushing up a weight, you know, very rapidly. Mm. That kind of training that your legs are getting during weight training will actually allow you to increase your jumping height more. And, and, and that's where a teacher could teach you that kind of information. So that kind of external feedback to actually help you figure out what needs to be worked on and the best method to help you get there. Exactly. You know, yeah. and, and if you run into problems, then the teacher will be able to pinpoint yeah. what is it that you're not doing right. Or maybe you need to train something additional here to be able to, you know, achieve the goal that uh, the teacher and you agreed on. It's interesting, Anders, because I, um, one thing I don't lack as a person is I don't lack discipline. So, you know, like, for example, I wanted to play the piano and, and the next day I was practicing an hour a day every day of my life. Like, I, I'm not the guy who needs to develop willpower to do something. I've just kind of had that within me. But I've been playing piano for about five or six years now. And, and I realized after kind of studying your work and, and uh, I realized that while I didn't lack the discipline to do the work, my technique to get better was very poor. And for that reason, I'm probably not as good a pianist as what I could have been if I had a different approach. And it's been really interesting over the last period of time, I've been really trying to practice this kind of deliberate practice model, and that includes using a, a teacher, but also includes a lot of recording, identifying the hard moment and just practicing on the hard moment, doing that kind of that hard concentrated effort. And it's amazing how much progress I've made in, in you know, a very short period of time in comparison to the period of time I put into that because I didn't really have a very good practice strategy. Well, you know, I, this makes me so happy to hear that this was useful to you because, 
that I've heard a lot of people, you know, b- basically uh, finding that confronting the difficulty mm-hmm. uh, and, and basically working on the hardest part when you have the most focus and energy as opposed to, you know, trying to do them towards the end. Uh, and you're just setting yourself up for failure. So mm. by basically, you know, having the teacher to kind of give you assurance here that, you know, if you're willing to do these things, you're going to gradually be able to reach that level that you're aspiring to. You know, that I think is, is something that I know that people really have found very helpful because some people, you know, when they're doing it by themselves, you know, sometimes they wonder if they really are capable of doing it. Yeah. But having a teacher who've seen other people going through that same stages, and now I'm encouraging people to record videos. So that would allow other people now to kind of see, you know, that person was doing this. And now three months later, they're actually able to do this vastly superior uh, uh, realization here of whatever it is. And I think that the really dangerous aspect of it is that, you know, like I think of my time when I was first playing piano where I just kind of had a discipline but not a very good technique to practice, is that I was starting to build in this within myself because I never really nailed anything that perfectly. Um, this idea that I would never be a great musician. And so I was identifying that the limits around my ability, not necessarily looking at my technique of how to get better. And so I started to self-identify in a way that was actually a limiting factor in me moving forward and and probably limited my confidence in this area. Whereas when I shifted the way I practiced, then I just saw things as problems that needed to be solved and what was the approach to solve it and realized that I could get better. And that was quite a, a shift for me. Well, I think that's wonderful. One point that I want to make, uh, which is sort of related, and that is this idea here, and I often use the analogy of a mountain. You know, so when people actually started to try climb mountains, it was sort of that one person was trying, you know, to get up there, and then they ran into something that they couldn't really deal with. And they, they come back and share that information, and then somebody else now actually can draw on that knowledge and hopefully get a little bit further. Mm. And I think in many domains, you know, there is that accumulated wisdom, especially among professional teachers, about what need what you need to be able to do, especially to get to those highest levels. Because there, I think, is where the technique is going to be the most limiting factor. And if you've acquired basically something that is not completely right, you're going to basically be penalized when you're trying to do it. Uh, so, for example, in ballet, if if you don't have the right kind of posture and then you're increasing more difficult sort of movements, you're not going to have that balance that is going to make you able to progress. Hmm. So if you kind of started out doing something incorrectly, you may actually need to invest in acquiring the fundamentals that would then provide you with the stepping stones uh, to go further. Hmm. Well, one thing you talk a lot about in the book is, is you know, this kind of idea of deliberate practice, you know, and, and getting the people and identifying the thing and doing the hard work. But you say one of the the real rewards or the, of the 
benefits of this deliberate practice is kind of the mental models that people build and that when we look at these high level people and in kind of any area they just have these high level mental models that have been developed because of the deliberate practice they've done can you can maybe share a bit more insight on that well you know and i think that is uh maybe one of the most exciting parts because it's kind of hard almost to kind of understand why sort of a chess player can kind of see or or generate you know extremely successful moves that a lesser player you know in some ways are surprised by because they didn't even consider them so i guess i would argue uh and if we take music as a example that control that you as a musician can generate by being able to think of a sound and then actually having a representation that tries to translate that sound into something that you can produce on your instrument. If you can then listen to the sound that's being produced, you can match it up now with your intention. Mm -hmm. And by cycling through, you're actually able to create something that you generated mentally. Mm -hmm. And I think that provides a lot of people tremendous satisfaction. You know, that ability of sort of cognitively plan and construct ideas that you can then actually give life to and if you're a writer you know you can express your ideas and communicate your experiences but all of these kind of activities you know require technique that allows you now to basically go from your mental way of representing things so you can actually produce something that you can share with other people. Mm. And 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 we basically find the same thing in sports <clears throat> where the best players, they can actually, they go around scanning the environment so way past what they can see at the moment to build a mental model of where the different players are and where they're going because there's this momentum so if you're starting in one direction you're not going to totally turn around and that actually allows them once they get the ball they can now pass the ball to a player that really has much better chances here of doing something than less skilled players who can't keep track of what all the different players are and sort of uncover now opportunities for their uh, teammates. I saw a very good example of this. Um, they did a documentary on Ronaldo, the soccer player, and um, and as a part of the, uh, kind of based on his level of skill. And one of the, the things they did in his documentary was they got him to take a free kick from the corner. And at first, they he had to basically get it to the, so where this guy was standing. And at first, they did it in in a way where. Um, you know, he, the lights were on. The second time they did it, they the guy was running in and then they turned the lights off just before he kicked the ball. But then the third time they did it, they turned the lights off before he'd even kicked the ball and he still hit the mark on the spot. And they were just kind of saying that was one of the things that he had. He could read the play so far ahead and he could just watch people's trajectory and then place the ball in that spot kind of so much faster than anybody else, was, which, which was obviously his advantage as a player. Oh, that, that's that's a wonderful example. Uh, uh, actually, I might even ask you here if you could yeah, uh, you give the me the source. Yeah. Uh, because we, we know from other uh, activities, like, for example, tennis, uh, where you can play it indoors, that you can turn out the light. 
and and that very good tennis players seem to be able to you know with with much less uh, information being able to you know kind of handle balls uh but but in in general that that's true for all the domain that that I know that a skilled player can actually and often after you've completed a match sort of replay a particular sequence of a game and now sort of analyze it and ask questions you know so if the outcome wasn't what you predicted you know what was it that you weren't paying attention to and and often then by going to videos you will actually be able now to kind of see was there something that you missed was one player running much faster than you had expected and, and thereby uh, was able to intercept the ball when you were passing it. Mm. So so basically that kind of being able to expect things. And I've been talking to surgeons who often spend, you know, an hour before surgery looking at all the brain scans or, or other scans that are relevant to the surgery they're doing. So they can kind of in their head, go through the surgery and sort of anticipate potential issues and problems. So then they can kind of sort out or prepare for different issues that might come up even before they're actually into the surgery. Wow. And that seems to be one of the things that master surgeons have told me is the thing that sets apart junior surgeons uh, from more senior uh, uh, expert surgeons. And so what we're saying is that if I do the work with deliberate practice in the right way, that's the kind of world I'm going to develop within my mind in those areas. And, you know, that, and the benefit is obviously this kind of much level higher insight or, or a capability to be able to see things beforehand and make much better decisions at those times. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, if you embed this so you can actually now relate what you are able to do better to talking to the patient and, and in some ways see that you actually made a difference here in somebody's life mm. by being able to do things that maybe other people might not have been able to do as successfully. And yeah. I think the same thing in music. I mean, if you can do something that you can actually see here that the audience is being moved by and now relate that to something that you made yourself being able to do, you know, that generates kind of a feedback loop that I think is providing a lot of people with extreme enjoyment and, and also reinforcing here kind of this idea that you want to stretch yourself and you want to do new things and go a little bit further and improve your outcomes with cancer surgeries a little bit, you know, and, and basically that becomes now a very exciting path that, you know, in some ways provides you with one important source of meaning in your life. Mm, and, and I imagine that becomes a bit of a loop of motivation, doesn't it? Because I'm, I'm getting this higher level reward for the high level effort and the rewards I'm creating for others or the experience I create to the world. So I'm more motivated to kind of do more deliberate practice, if you know what I mean. Exactly. And, you know, and I think when we talk about that people don't like to do deliberate practice, what I find is that successful people they almost schedule time when they're going to, you know, be doing their practice. Mm. So they don't really have to get into the issue that a lot of amateurs do. You know, am I going to do it now or should I do it tomorrow? Mm. No, they built up basically a routine 
where they, you know, by default, basically start practicing. And then they're focusing in on the goals. You know, they're not asking yourself, do I want to do this? They're basically focusing in on how can I basically reach this goal? And then when you do reach that goal, then you can, you know, take a pause and in some ways, uh, you know, enjoy that achievement that you did. But but if you were to interrupt people and basically ask them to, you know, make judgments about how they feel, then I think you would find, you know, that this is not the most relaxing and enjoyable activity that yeah. they could imagine. Yeah. Uh, but but it's really, you know, and I, and I think people who go out exercising, you know, have a little bit of that sense that when you push yourself, especially if you feel maybe a little tired, you know, that's not a thing that if that was all there was, but once you actually get to the end and you really feel here that, you know, you're now relaxed, you basically feel very good here about what you were able to do during the, 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 the training, you know, that's the moments that I guess I would feel that the really successful individuals, that's what they focus in on. Mm, they understand the reward of the hard work and that becomes the motivator in a way. Right. So it's sort of like you try to minimize these conflict situations by designing your life and thereby it makes it easier now to kind of be focused here on what it is that you want to achieve. And and then sometimes, you know, I think allowing yourself some time to, if you're a musician, you know, just explore different new things. You know, that I think a lot of musicians find very enjoyable and in the process you may actually discover something that you say hmm you know i want to basically incorporate that in something uh that you were planning to perform and then you know it's it's sort of a, a, a harvesting here of ideas and feelings and experiences Hmm. Well, another thing you, you, you talk about a lot is this whole idea of that we're not chasing knowledge, we're chasing skills. Maybe give us a little bit on that. Right. And, and I think our educational system, unfortunately, is focused so much on, on knowledge because it's so easy to test whether somebody has it or not. Hmm. But in all the professional domains, I think they've all recognized that knowledge by itself doesn't help you. So if you see a patient, what you need is sort of methods and techniques that allow you now to kind of have access to your knowledge as it's relevant to symptoms and problems uh, that you discover. So if you build up a representation here where you collect information about various symptoms and then you generate various hypotheses and ideas about what it is, you need to kind of have reorganized your knowledge to fit that diagnostic activity. So what many medical schools now do is that they, instead of teaching it, you know, as kind of physiology of the heart or whatever, uh, you're basically framing it now in terms of medical practice where you would encounter certain types of patients and having to make now diagnostic differences here between different types of problems that patients might have and what kind of tests you would need to do in order to eventually being able to diagnose and then treat uh, the problem that they have. Mm, mm. So, so when we think about our own self-development, it is to really focus on what's the skill I want to be improving? Exactly. What is it that you want to do? And I think that, 
you know, if there's one thing in my research, it's that focus in on trying to clearly define what is it that you actually want to do. Mm. So if, if you as a medical doctor, you know, want to basically uh, diagnose various kinds of patients, that can now be defined here by, you know, a large number of potential patients. And the question is, are you able now by taking out, eliciting that information from those patients such that you would be able to identify basically the problem that they have and, and or, you know, if you're a surgeon, then basically uh, your issues might be different. You know, mm. you would want to basically interview the patient and make sure here that this surgery with all the benefits and potential risks is really worthwhile for this individual and that it's very likely here that, you know, investing and, 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 and doing this uh, is really going to be a benefit to the patient. One, one thing I love, um, well, one thing I'm interested in is, you know, a lot of the work we talk about or you talk about is this kind of practical application. So it might be being a musician, it might be, you know, um, being a surgeon and stuff like that. And and I may, and there is also, you know, even internal, so like being a mathematician and it's how to problem solve those things. But I wonder if you've done much research on people trying to change personal behavior traits that they struggle with. So we might say um, bad eating habits or, um, you know, negative self-talk and stuff like that. Have you ever done much research into using deliberate practice to overcome a lot of self-problems and self-behavior that actually works against people in life that if they were to liberate themselves in that area would actually be quite powerful. Have you, have you ever done much research on that? Uh, you know, basically, um, uh, I haven't personally uh, done uh, much research. What I have been uh, doing is to interact a fair bit with uh, psychotherapists who would have patients, you know, that they would be working with. And, and I guess in some sense, uh, the issues are, what is it that makes one therapist more successful here in actually helping their patients uh, mm -hmm. than another therapist? And, and basically, so that would be a sort of an indirect uh, kind of answer to your question. And, and one of the things that seems to be key, you know, is establishing kind of that personal connection uh, and, and, and basically... People have, uh, there are researchers who have interviewed uh, psychotherapists who have outcomes that are better than their colleagues in the same uh, kind of therapeutic uh, center and, and basically tried to look at it. And, and it's a little bit like surgery. You know, these successful therapists spend more time preparing for seeing the patient. You know, a little bit like the surgeon thinking through here, what is it that I need to do? And then uh, I guess, working with the patient and trying to find out now how can we actually help that patient, you know, uh, prepare for difficult situations and maybe also make them focused here on the benefits of the changes that they're trying to do. But, but to be honest here, you know, this is something that is more uh, like I've been talking to the teachers of psychotherapists, you know, talking about how you would be able to develop uh, psychotherapists that have better outcomes 
with a patient. Because uh, through you kind of your work and stuff like that, and I do a little bit of mentoring work with some people, and, and I was doing some mentoring with a guy who drinks too much. Um, he, he's not a, an alcoholic or anything like that, but he, when he drinks, he always drinks to the point where he kind of gets slightly disappointed in himself. And, and one of his goal was to be a drinker who could enjoy drinking and know when to stop. Um, that was his goal, and and so we really kind of we took this approach of what's your skill with drinking, like what are the what are the skills we need to think about in improving um, your ability to be able to stop or or not go to that point where you wake up the next day disappointed in the level you went to, and we kind of really identified a few key moments, like you needed to you know, when you went out socially start drinking a little bit later, practice drinking one beer on, one beer off, communicating with his friends, his intentions with his drinking, and all of these types of things. And we basically identified, well, where are the, we kind of looked at his skills, and we said, well, where are the skills that are making you drink too much? What's happening there? And, and what do we need to change? And then we said to him, okay, well, over the next period of time, we want you to practice those kind of outcomes or, or the behaviors are going to help you have better outcomes and it was really interesting he was able to shift by having that approach and it was really fascinating to see actually to look at a behavior and could we treat it as a skill and shift the desired outcome based on looking at the behaviors i i think that's that's really fantastic and and i think you know uh i'm hoping here that maybe get a talking a little bit about or or kind of looking at that research that is focused now on helping people, you know, with issues that have to do with the planning of, of their days. And, and I know that from some research on, on basically, uh, uh, you know, various kinds of medical problems that are virtually permanent where you, you know, you're diabetic. So you actually have to change your entire, uh, uh, kind of, structure of your life mm. and, and and there are ways in which you can avoid now various kinds of problems and i think there are some interesting similarities between you know the expert who is now designing their life in a way to kind of support their ability now to be focused and and try to develop their own performance mm. and when we interviewed musicians what i found interesting was that the expert musicians very deliberately picked friends. So they avoided certain types of, of friends because they knew that these friends would have these other social behaviors. So they would feel, you know, almost bad that you would elect now to go home early from a party because you really wanted to have that good energy in the morning to be able to work on your craft. Mm. So, so by dating people who had an equal commitment to some kind of uh, skill trajectory, uh, you basically avoided that kind of uh, maybe destructive discussion here mm. about somebody who has, you know, five times more leisure time than, than you feel like you would want to have as part of your uh, uh, weekly uh, schedule. Mm. And, and I think there are other things uh, they were talking about was actually thinking about individuals that they would be able to go to for emotional support or other kinds of things. So they really kind of arranged their life in a way that I think is much more disciplined than I think the average person of, of actually making sure here that they were doing things and reciprocating so they actually had 
you know, uh, an environment that was truly supportive of their efforts uh, to, to reach their highest level. Yeah, so their environment actually made it easier for them to continue down the path they wanted to go to, didn't work against them, and they were quite conscious in how they chose to do that. Exactly, and I think, you know, some of these problems, social problems that some people have, you know, if somebody might be able to help them figure out here how they might be able to redesign, you know, some of their interactions, that may actually make it a lot easier for them, uh, you know, to make adjustments in their uh, habitual behavior. Mm, yeah, totally, because a lot of our behaviors are just poorly learned behavior practices and all poorly, poorly learned strategies that we've just sat in for a long time and we haven't actually thought about, well, if I were to change this behavior, what would be the way to do it? And then, then to look at it as a practice thing, because a lot, again, as we go back to earlier, it's that I identify that I'm just, this is the way I am and which doesn't lead me to change. Whereas when I look at it as a skill, maybe obviously there's different levels, but maybe I can change these things and how would I go about doing it? No, I, I think that that's a great uh, idea and suggestion and, and, Maybe somebody listening here, uh, you know, would get excited about that. And I think that has some real potential. When it, when it comes to motivation, you know, because I imagine a lot of people, because, you know, you, I love you, your work and I just think your insight's brilliant. And, and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are very attractive to the conversation. Um, but this is, you often get the person who listens to this go, but yeah, I haven't found my thing. Or, you know, where do I start? Um, you know, like it's easy for people who already have this or have found that they love music. What, how do you find people find the initial motivation? I, that's a great question. And, and I guess uh, what, what Robert Poole, my co-author on the book, and I, you know, we were kind of talking about that it's really kind of productive to have a society where people are supposed to find their gifts mm. uh, because we don't really think that there is much evidence here that anybody kind of just discovered that they're able to do something that they didn't know about. And that there is a little bit of, at least here in the United States, a culture here of going out and sniffing at things to see whether, you know, that's the right thing. And most college students that, that I talk to, you know, they've been around sniffing and they don't find anything. So it's kind of been a very uh, kind of non-productive process. So looking at my life, I think I've always had one thing that I was really interested in that maybe that, you know, something happened and I got interested in something else, but it was more, you know, this idea here of assuming a direction and, and maybe as a parent, you would be able to kind of support your kids to at least pick one activity, you know, what they actually pick. Um, and, and sometimes it's useful to pick something that you're interested in because it provides now the opportunity for parent and child to bond doing this activity that you enjoy, which in turn uh, makes it likely here that you can get your child to enjoy it. Mm. But essentially this thing here of providing ideally every child with this experience of how much they can change if they're willing now to invest in this kind of directed training, I think you know will actually be very beneficial as they get older and now they can redirect all that knowledge they, that they have about change uh, towards some professional activity that they are interested in. But essentially, even in college, you know, you have a path. And I, I guess pretty early on, I, I, I wanted to be a researcher uh, in nuclear physics, which when I was in high school seemed to be the most exciting place. 
but basically then it switched over to studying psychology and thinking and and I guess that's where I've been sort of roaming around now for the last uh, uh, 50 years. So, uh, and, and, and I think that having, giving people that sort of opportunity of having something that they can, you know, feel like they can actually understand and contribute to really provides them with all sorts of opportunities for interacting with other people, for producing you know, successful things that will make life a little bit better for some person. Mm. Uh, Do you feel that that's just real important? Yeah, well, I just think, you know, for those people who are in that place, it is important that you devote the time. Because I think one of the things I love about your work, and, you, you know, you're a big advocate that there is no real such thing as the natural-born genius or the natural-born talented person. Um, and... Once we understand that and we kind of realize that I can improve, and I think that's the most important thing, you know, to reinforce because a lot of people do put these limits on themselves. And once I realize that I can improve and I'm willing to kind of take this deliberate practice approach and I'm willing to do the work, then I can be moving towards a life which I feel will be more fulfilling. And as I do the work, the motivation will come because I feel the success. I, I think you summarized it uh, amazingly well. Yeah, um, just just a couple last little questions. Do you struggle with this yourself? Like, how are you at deliberate practice? Well, you know, I think most of my uh, activity, and, and and I guess that at this point, you know, I I don't have a teacher. I think I, when I was, uh, you know, as a graduate student and even as a postdoc, uh, you know, I was working with uh, senior researchers, and I remember that our first paper that appeared in science on the memory training that we did, uh, Bill Chase, my senior uh, colleague, he told me, well, you know, you're going to be first author, but then you're going to have to write the paper. And, and I think we're up to version 50 uh, before uh, he even sort of started working on it <laughs> and then eventually submitting it to it. And, and I think that process, you know, was extremely helpful for me to learn because it's sort of like, obviously, it was a little setting at times, you know, trying to do something that you thought was good and saying, well, you know, did you think about this? Did you think about that? And I would go back and sort of revise. But, but that kind of idea here of going through versions of things where you incrementally improve it, I think is kind of a, a really great model. And if you do have the teacher who is really willing to help you see what the problems are and at least giving you a chance to try to solve them yourself, I think that's when you're actually developing people that have a chance of making a contribution. Mm, so, as, 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 you know, and it goes back to what you said before, if you are trying to find motivation or you do want to change, to really look to and put those things behind you to help you move towards it as well. Right, and, and you need to find that teacher who is really willing to invest that amount of time in you, and and I think that's really key. And and I think teachers really appreciate when you have somebody who is really motivated and really wants to do their very best, and in some ways only really want guidance here about things that they need to pay attention to, so they can kind of incorporate that and in, and in, in how they're uh, producing products. Just, just last two little quick questions. Um, what, what, what are the, what are the criticisms you get? 
Well, I, I think there's been a lot of uh, kind of attempts to summarize our findings incorrectly. And uh, so I've spent a fair amount of time trying to explain at least how I view uh, at, uh, some of these uh, researchers and and that it kind of includes even Gladwell yep. uh, summary of our 10,000 of his 10,000 hour rule that, you know, I, I think that idea here that when you look at, and if there is such a thing as talent, even the most talented spent an inordinate amount of time perfecting their skills. And obviously you can't really expect anybody else to be able to attain those skills in less and I think that's what the essence of kind of that uh, finding here about the hours. Now, the way Gladwell was talking about it as being something magical and being a response here of just putting in numerous hours, that obviously is, is something that I've tried to uh, kind of clarify that at least I don't believe that's a, a correct interpretation of our findings mm. because we were only really looking at music students who were working with teachers who actually guided them, you know, to incrementally improve their performance, yeah. which is quite different from just basically playing music like the Beatles did in Hamburg, you know, for very long periods of time. Mm. And, and I think even my own example from earlier of my own piano playing, well, I'd put, you know, I didn't, hadn't done 10,000 hours, but I put a lot of time into my musicianship and I actually hadn't improved a lot until I actually went to a deliberate practice model. Um, Lastly, um, uh, what, what are you finding really fascinating right now? Well, I, I, I think the issue here of motivation uh, and basically how uh, you can actually help individuals to, you know, make that initial commitment and then basically how they can sustain uh, their motivation. Mm. I think that's something that I'm really interested in and and I'm working with a few people here on 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 trying to kind of describe that because I think we are getting more and more knowledge here about the path that seems to work uh, for people to really improve. So then the next step, I guess, is uh, how can we actually help those individuals who want to make that journey, you know, and and also maximize their chances so they're prepared for obstacle and challenges that are invariably going to uh, be encountered uh, on their way to uh, that end. Mm. Uh, so anyway, that, that's something that I'm, I'm just fascinated by. And also I'm interested here how people can apply this to their work environment because it seems that there's too many people who are not really engaged in their jobs. Yeah. And, and, and I'm wondering here whether taking this sort of performance view of, and also feeling like you're responsible here for, you know, what you're doing and that you can actually improve uh, the benefits to, for your coworkers and whoever else, you know, that, that you basically are serving in your job. And, and, and that is something that I find, uh, really exciting and, and, and hoping that, uh, you know, will, the, that people will be interested in working on because I think that could, could really, you know, show here how these ideas can make a positive difference. Mm, well, and I think that is that thing of we want to be stimulated, don't we? We do want to, we want to, like, we all want, deep down the, the greatest satisfaction of life is that kind of when we are 
contributing and growing and all those types of things. And, you know, there's so many people in the workplace who kind of feel wasted, you know, and, and if we can tap into that, that's a pretty powerful shift in things, isn't it? Well, I, I would I would love to uh, be able to contribute to that if I can. Yeah. Hey, Anders, um, I just appreciate, I, I can imagine you're a very, very busy man, so I just appreciate um, you coming on the show today. I just I just think your body of work is, is absolutely fantastic, and I think the influence you're having on the world is a very powerful thing. And um, just to, if people want to follow you, do you have a website? I know you, the book is peak, and I'll put a link to that on my website, but do you have some? Right. Uh, we, uh, Robert Poole and I have a website, uh, peak the book in one word dot com uh and uh, and i think uh freakonomics uh radio is setting up an environment where people who are interested in acquiring a new skill uh and and they're uh talking about building kind of a, a website that would actually provide connection here so if you're interested in finding a teacher you know then you would be able to do that and also by providing links to all sorts of resources for people interested in developing performance in a particular area. Uh, so that might be something to kind of look out for. And, and I'm, you know, trying to uh, contribute as much as I can here to that, because I think that would actually be something that, you know, would be helpful to uh, some people that I've encountered because they have that problem of finding a teacher that is really enthused here about helping people, especially people maybe in their middle age, you know, improve some skill uh, and, and have experience of having helped uh, other people previously. Well, and you finish your book up with this whole idea of imagine the possibility for humanity if we could all get to this higher level, if the percentage of us increased of the amount of people who learned this way and, and that's the exciting part. And, and you know, we, we this kind of way of thinking does seem to be coming more into the forefront of the, the kind of social consciousness. And um, it's just exciting work. I just love your work. Thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for uh, talking to me. I, I you hopefully understand here. I, I love this and, and love every opportunity here to get a chance to talk. And, and thank you so much for your great insights and, and questions. Thank you very much. Right, hopefully you got a lot out of the interview. He's, he's a pretty charismatic man, isn't he? And he's a pretty passionate man and uh, yeah, really good interview. Anyway, I'm going to get it pretty much done and dusted because I'm on holiday. I want to get back out to my holiday things. So thank you for your support in 2019, heading to 2020. It's a big start of the decade. Kind of crazy to think where you'll be 10 years from now. It's kind of always a big question to ask yourself. So uh, thank you for all the patrons of the show. Thank you for those who are putting feedback up. Next time on the show, I'll read another piece of feedback from some other... Um, person who's putting feedback out in the podcatchers, spread the word about the show, get out there, keep being yourself, and I'll see you in the next episode of the Bevan James Isle Show. Keep being yourself. Um.